Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first segment of our first episode of our new show, Azimuth Podcast. We're a variety show focusing on news, politics, leadership, and family values. In this episode, we'll discuss why we started our podcast, why you should even listen to us, and what's up with people recently being detained, including a U.S. Army soldier running in North Korea and a female truck driver being detained in Dubai. And lastly, we'll discuss former President Trump's classified document trial date and what a security clearance even is. I'm Kimberly McNabb. And I'm Bear McNabb, and we are truly excited to have you with us. So, Kimberly, why did we start this podcast? Well, Barrett, you are so good at keeping up with what's going on in the world and tying it into your life experiences. I often feel that others would be so enriched to learn from our chats that we get to have after putting the kids to bed, and I thought we should include others into the conversation. Yeah, I completely agree with you in wanting to form an educated community where we can share thoughts and ideas. We have a strong nuclear family with strong patriotic values, and it seems that the moderates in this country are just being drowned out. We're just an average husband and wife, but we have extraordinary life experiences. So I'm sure that everyone is dying to know what is up with the name Azimuth for our podcast. Well, Kimberly, this is a lensatic compass, and it's what uh, we in the military use to land navigate from point A to point B. Uh, the azimuth is your line in, in a designated di- direction and point. And uh, the path you're taking is not just the direction you're going, um, but it does get you from point A to point B, and it really does help you to have an azimuth uh, to be able to know where your destination is going to be. Unfortunately, we're seeing our country beginning to head into a direction that is not conducive for the American dream, and external and internal threats are real. And if we're not brave enough to talk about them, America is not going to be the same country that we and our parents knew and loved. For instance, you and I both grew up being able to play in the street for hours on end, and our parents didn't have to hover hover over us, and uh, they could send us to school trusting that not only would we learn good facts and um, the values the teachers instilled in us would also align with the values that our parents at home instilled in us. And I honestly can't say that would be the case today. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I remember as a, as a child being in kindergarten, uh, having a bike and, and having my friends and being able to just ride around. I grew up uh, uh, in Indiana and in Texas, and, um, you know, my parents just wouldn't see us, um, you know, for hours on end. Uh, we would just ride around the neighborhood, uh, taking honeysuckle off of uh, neighbors' yards on their fences, and, um, you know, really just just being wholesome. I, I can remember that, that we still lived in an area where we didn't lock the doors. I mean, what was your experience growing up um, as, a, as a kid? Uh, very similar to that. Uh, we would run in and out of our neighbors' backyards. Uh, our neighbors could trust that we weren't going to destroy their property. Uh, our parents could trust that uh, no one was going to hurt us in the process. Um, I mean, basically, the only nuisance thing that would happen is our neighbor's kids would want to come see what we got for Christmas at 7 a.m. on Christmas morning. (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, something uh, uh, about you, um, I know you're a big runner, and uh, I know you just recently accomplished a major milestone. Uh, Talk to us about that. I've run a marathon in all 50 states. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't know a lot of people that have been to all 50 states, much less ran a marathon in all 50 states. Uh, It's surreal to be able to say that I finished such a task. Uh, Like any uh, formidable 
thing that you hope to accomplish, it, it, it seems surreal once you get on the other side. Um, you know, I'm sure one day, like many people, seems surreal when our children are are grown. Um, but but yeah, it, it's been kind of a crazy thing, and having children in the middle of it uh, was definitely uh, <laughs> not uh, conducive to such a goal. Right, and I know some of the the races you ran in, uh, including Portland and uh, San Francisco. Um, I know they were they were post uh, pandemic. What what's kind of the the situation that you saw on the ground, just from your experience? Uh, so before the lockdowns, people would not there. There was no timidity in going up and talking to another runner before the race because you have this common. And it can be your first marathon. I've met people who've done hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, you know, you could go up and talk to anybody about running, whether it was how nervous you were or what your strategy was or any setbacks you've had in your training. Uh, you know, diet. Uh, if you have someone on the course to cheer you on, even though it's the world's most boring parade, as most of the posters people hold up say. <laughs> uh, but... The ones I did after, you have to worry about, you know, getting tested or if you've had the vaccination and then, you know, there's this uh, undercurrent, uh, tense undercurrent of um, people sizing each other, not if they're a good runner or not, which is the only thing that's really relevant and, you know, your common enjoyment of it, but... um, you know, if you're vexed or not, um, and any political leanings uh, associated with that. And, you know, you're there to have fun. You're there to hopefully make some nice friends. Uh, right. Sometimes you get in conversation and, you know, you talk a, a lot about where you've run. And with the tension, it's hard to do that. And it's not that much fun. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it really, really does. I mean, it's just an amazing feat. I know uh, as you go throughout the United States, uh, the politics uh, changed drastically, and and I know vaccination status uh, changed back, uh, you know, drastically as you navigated through. Um, were there any roadblocks? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I qualified for Boston uh, in 2020. Um, a lot of people either gained weight or lost weight. A lot of us gained weight, and um, but I think a lot of us felt like nothing was in our control. And um, so for me, I really wanted to have one thing in control, and that was my running. So I qualified for Boston, and uh, they either wanted you to go through, you know, multiple COVID tests, and it was, and, and the news on the rules kept changing day to day, and you have to plan something like that months, if not a year in advance. And I didn't want to spend all this time and money and the the nerves of doing the marathon. Uh, prior to getting there, just to get there and realize, oh, I failed a COVID test. Um, so that, that's nerve-wracking, and then you have to get the shots and, and whatnot. Um, so, so yeah, you're already a bundle of nerves with the travel and hoping your plane doesn't get canceled or if you don't have bad weather, because like I said, you have to plan it at least six months in advance. And um, so, yeah, it's just a bundle of nerves you don't need. Oh, and for us... Uh, getting Nana to come come out, you know, for a, a week to watch the kids. And, um, you know, that is someone else's paid time off that she has to plan a year in advance. Right. And, you know, 
we've been married 11 years. And uh, gentlemen, that's a, uh, a tip for you. Notice I didn't ask that as a question to my wife. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew that right off the bat because I keep track of that. But we've been married 11 years and approximately half of it was when I was uh, in the Army as an officer and half of it has been um, as I retired. And we have uh, a number of small businesses that we own, uh, mostly uh, small box retail. And, um, you know, it just with with COVID, I mean, we were able to uh, to survive. Um, it was difficult, uh, just like many small business owners. Um, it took a lot of uh, ingenuity and a lot of uh, doing a lot of research and, and looking for ways uh, to have economic uh, input injected in and capital injected into the uh, the businesses. Uh, but I tell you what, it was, um, you know, just a, a life-changing experience for so many, and we were able to uh, get through it, and we're still feeling the effects. I mean, obviously, there's economic headwinds that are going on right now, but uh, we're able to adapt and overcome, and, and I know a lot of business owners are, are suffering out there, and um, we definitely feel for you um, because we know the pain. Now, Barrett, um, you mentioned that you're in the Army. Would you mind telling everyone why did you get in the Army? How did it happen? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was uh, commissioned as a second lieutenant in the infantry um, in 1999 uh, from a small school in Huntsville, Texas called Sam Houston State University. And um, I was stationed all over the world. I've kind of walked everywhere. Uh, my first duty assignment, I was stationed in Korea, and then I made my way to the 82nd Airborne Division, um, and uh, where I spent the preponderance of my time uh, as, a, as a paratrooper, um, where I did all the requisite camping trips to Iraq and Afghanistan um, and North Africa. Uh, as I got promoted, I, I transitioned into a foreign army, uh, excuse me, foreign area officer, and um, that uh, had me selling uh, weapons to um, uh, foreign militaries and foreign governments, uh, working with the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, and we were stationed in U.S. embassies uh, all over the world. Um, so how I got there when I signed up uh, for my uh, college classes as a freshman, I uh, you know was all the uh, it was like a newspaper and you picked your classes and I picked this one that really uh, stood out to me as a as a good business class uh, leadership and management techniques and when I showed up to the class uh, I was sitting in in the classroom and the instructor walked in wearing camouflage uniform and had a a flat top and uh, I was like what is going on here and um, as we um, you know, he introduced himself and he said, uh, welcome to Leadership and Management Techniques, Military Science 101, ROTC. And I looked around and I was not the only one that had made the mistake. And uh, so we were all just kind of looking at each other like, what do we get ourselves into? And a couple weeks later, um, the person sitting in front of me had a camouflage uniform on and I said, hey man, where'd you, where'd you get that? And he said, well, I joined this special organization called Ranger Company and ROTC and you gotta come check it out. And I went out there, liked what I saw, and um, went to airborne school as a cadet uh, to be a U.S. Army paratrooper, and then went back to back uh, to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii to go to air assault school, where I uh, learned the art of um, helicopter infantry and how to sling weapons and equipment um, via a helicopter. And I tell you what, the, the rest was history. I got commissioned and um, was uh, just super proud to, to be able to be in the Army and, and serve my country um, I tell you, it, it made me the person and the man that uh, I am today, and uh, I'm just beyond uh, excited. It, uh, it's helped me in my, um, my personal life. It's helped me in my business skills. I didn't have any 
any business um, knowledge or background, but my military operational planning experience overlaid very well with the business world. Um, both of us had high-level security clearances that we'll talk about later, but um, that uh, Kimberly got uh, in the embassy when we were in Morocco. And uh, I tell you what, it's just been an amazing experience, uh, not only um, getting older, but also being married to you and uh, to have our two children. We have a six-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And I tell you what, they are a handful. Um, they are a handful. I think uh, you and I were talking and said uh, one time that nothing will make you grow up faster than having children. And uh, I definitely ag agree with you on that. Okay, awesome. Well, that's a little bit about us. Um, please uh, continue on to the next segments. Um, we have two more segments coming up. And um, we would love to, uh, for you to uh, stick around right after these messages. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, we would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in. And uh, I took another step, and they both kneeled and chambered around from their, um, their rifles. And that I did understand. And uh, Sergeant Coe came up and said, Sir, uh, they're saying if you take another step, they're going to shoot you. Welcome back to the second segment of our first episode of the Azimuth Podcast. I'm Barrett, and always joining me is my wife, Kimberly McNabb. Now we're going to go shed and shift gears a little bit and dive into a pressing issue that involves a couple of fellow Americans abroad. That's right, Barrett. Today we're first discussing the case of Tierra Young Allen, a social media influencer from Texas known as Sassy Trucker on TikTok, who's been detained in United Arab Emirates, or UAE, for more than two months. Yes, and this story is deeply unsettling. Alan was in the UAE with a friend from Nigeria when she got involved in a car accident. But the ensuing chain of events was something nobody could have predicted. Absolutely, Barrett. After the accident, Alan went to retrieve her belongings from the rental car company. But when she was asked to pay thousands of dollars, things quickly escalated. The associates started to yell, Alan responded in kind, and soon law enforcement was called and she was arrested. It's important to highlight here that the UAE has a very specific set of laws criminalizing actions like swearing, rudeness, and insulting gestures. Alan's mother, Tina Baxter, has noted that it wasn't the car accident that led to her arrest, but rather the reaction at the rental car company when she found out the exorbitant fee to retrieve her belongings, including her passport. Right, Barrett. According to Baxter, her daughter became a target when the authorities realized she was a U.S. citizen. She says, and I quote, People just think she's just some screaming monster when she's a very soft-spoken young lady. She was only pushed to the edge to respond back after she was afraid and being extorted for money and misled. And this seems to be a reoccurring issue. According to Rada Sterling, who leads a UK-based human rights advocacy organization detained in Dubai, has witnessed similar situations with other Americans in the UAE who ended up paying large sums of money just to get their passports back and leave the country. Yes, and in Alan's case, the police in Dubai have said that this incident has nothing to do about yelling, but is allegedly a slander-slash-libel case. 
They probably have said this in response to the large international media coverage the case is receiving. Sterling has pointed out that she has been charged, her passport is being held by the police, and she is not permitted to leave the country. If the police choose to prosecute, a process that can take several months, she could potentially face up to two years in prison if convicted. I tell you what, it's a sobering thought and a stark reminder of the potential challenges that uh, American citizens may face when they're abroad. But it's good to know Allen's family has reached out to Texas representatives Sheila Jackson-Lee and Senator Ted Cruz for assistance. Yes, and Cruz's office has confirmed that they are monitoring the situation and are in touch with Allen's family. They are also liaising with the Department of State about the case. Well, I tell you what, let's hope the situation can be resolved quickly and that Alan can be returned home safely. We'd like to make sure that we remind our listeners to stay aware, stay vigilant, stay safe when you're overseas, and most importantly, keep your passport on you. Don't ever give it up while in a foreign country. If needed, make a color copy with all your information and hand over the copy. Great advice. Now, Barrett, you used to travel over to that area often while working at the U.S. Central Command. Yeah, you bet. I was the country desk officer for the United Arab Emirates, Oman, and Yemen, traveling at least about every three weeks uh, over to the Arabian Peninsula. I spent a lot of time in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Muscat, and when we had a U.S. embassy there, Sana'a, Yemen. Any similar stories that you saw? Absolutely. One time I was in Muscat, Oman, for a high-level military meeting and negotiations uh, when I overheard a commotion at the hotel lobby front desk. And I tell you what, it was definitely... Um, one of those things that just uh, catches you, uh, you know, it was such a big, huge commotion. Um, as I went up to the front desk, I was reminded that earlier that week, um, there was a, a U.S. Marine captain um, that was in the south of the country and um, had uh, gotten in an altercation with the front desk uh, associate and uh, was yelling and screaming. Uh, unfortunately, the police were called and the Marine captain was arrested. Um, the ambassador really had no choice but to PNGM out of the country, which stands for declaring him persona non grata, and uh, which is State Department speak for get out. Um, I'm sure there was probably some administrative action that was taken against him when, when he got back home, but, um, but still he was arrested for screaming and yelling at uh, front desk staff. So as I uh, got up to the front desk, I could see that the woman is extremely aggravated, and I could tell that she was an American citizen. And as she was screaming um, at the, the front desk, she was, was talking about how her AT&T phone, cell phone, wasn't working and that she had paid for a, an international plan for her phone, and, uh, and she was frustrated that it, it wasn't working. As she was trying to contact AT&T, it, it was a comedy of errors. Because her cell phone was not working, she couldn't contact AT&T to resolve the situation. And she was taking her frustrations out on the front desk associate in the hotel in, in Muscatamon. And uh, she was screaming, look, I don't speak Omani, which is a, a mistake right off the bat because they speak Arabic there. Um, but, but still, uh, you know, I could see the situation was quickly spiraling out of control. So I approached her and showed her my embassy credentials and said, look, um, you know, can I please talk to you over here just real quick? And I said, look, here is um, my international government BlackBerry. Your taxes pay for it already. So go ahead and use my BlackBerry uh, to, to make that phone call uh, in order to resolve your situation. I'm going to be sitting in a chair uh, in, in the lobby. Uh, when you're done, please just come on over here and I'd like to talk to you for a bit. So she, she you know, made her phone calls and, um, 
I guess, resolved her situation with AT&T. And uh, as she came over and sat down next to me, I said, look, this is a piece of advice that, that I you know can give you. And it's up to you if you're going to accept it or not or blow me off. But you need to remember where you are. And you are not in the United States of America. You are in the Middle East. And so you need to always remember where you are, the same liberties that you have uh, or think you have in the United States about being having, having free, free speech and, and being able to, uh, to say whatever you want without repercussion, you need to make sure that you check that at the door when you travel into um, an area of the world where you do not have that right. Um, and so I said, look, I just saved you from, from going to jail. I could, I could read the body language of the front desk associates, and they were about to call the police. Sounded like she needed to check her azimuth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So she did thank me and, um, and said that she understood everything that, uh, that I had said, and I hope she learned her lesson. I really do, and I hope, hope uh, um, you know, she went on to do great and wonderful things. So, um, you know, the, the other currently evolving situation involves U.S. Army soldier Private Travis King, who recently crossed into the border uh, into North Korea. Yes, the tale of Private King is somewhat layered. His situation, which has now become an international incident, is a result of a sequence of events. Travis was stationed in South Korea, part of the 1st Armored Division, and has had a troubling track record in the past year. Yeah, now some background. Back in October 2022, he was arrested following an altercation between two South Korean nationals. And according to Army officials, he also damaged a police car uh, during the incident. It appears that he pleaded guilty to these charges and was fined about $4,000 by the Seoul Western District Court in February. However, it is not entirely clear if these were for the same incident. He had been on assault charges, released on July 10th, and was supposed to be sent back to Fort Bliss, Texas. Yeah, interestingly, he was awaiting an administrative separation with more than likely uh, facing a dishonorable discharge from the Army upon his return uh, to the U.S. So due to his overseas criminal conviction, so it appears his military career was on the verge of ending. But then everything took a dramatic turn. He was escorted to the airport by military police officers who had to stop at security slash customs, leaving Private King by himself. From there, he slipped away joining a tour group headed to Panjumyum, the Korean border village. And I tell you what, this is where the story takes a truly international turn. Uh, while laughing, according to people that were witnesses there, he made a dash across the border into North Korea. Um, it's a place filled with tourists and is heavily monitored by guards on both sides. The joint security area there in- includes uh, South Korean soldiers as well as um, uh, United States uh, service members. Upon reaching the North Korean side of the border, King was detained. According to Colonel Isaac Taylor, who is a spokesperson for U.S. forces Korea, King willfully and without authorization crossed the military demarcation line into the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And I tell you what, now the situation has really shifted gears to a diplomatic level. Uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has noted that they're closely monitoring the situation and investigating the situation, and they have notified King's uh, next of kin. However, uh, we don't have formal diplomatic relations with North Korea, and so it's very difficult to have open and clear communications, um, which is just going to exacerbate this situation. 
It seems like he joined the service in January 2021, and his original assignment was with the 6th Squadron, 1st Cavalry Regiment, 1st Brigade Combat Team, 1st Armored Division. His unit went home while he was in jail, and he was administratively attached to a unit from the 4th Infantry Division when he crossed the border. Well, fast forward to today, and the situation has not gotten any simpler. Uh, United Nations Command has begun a dialogue with North Korea about Private King, and you know this is something the Deputy Commander at UN Command, uh, British Lieutenant General Andrew Harrison, confirmed that although he did decline to def- uh, provide further details, citing the sensitivity of the discussions. It is unclear what King's current condition is and whether the North Koreans have responded constructively to the communications initiated by the UN command. Harrison has said, none of us know where this is going to end. I am in life an optimist and I remain optimistic, but again, I will leave it at that. Well, I tell you what, this raises questions about what North Korea's intentions might be with Private King. Uh, The situation could potentially escalate into a much bigger diplomatic issue uh, concerning the current tensions on the Korean Peninsula. I mean, um, you know, whether they're going to use Private King for propaganda purposes, um, whether um, he truly is detained or or, and and is being uh, currently interrogated, whether he's going to uh, declare defection status and say, look, I'm, I'm a defector, um, that would definitely play into um, North Korea's hands. That's right. It is speculated that North Korea might wait weeks or even months to provide any meaningful information about King. Some analysts suspect that North Korea could try to use this situation to get concessions from the U.S., such as reducing its military activities with South Korea. Well, I tell you what, we can't predict how this is going to unfold, but we'll definitely be keeping an eye on this evolving situation. We hope Private King is safe and diplomatic dialogue will read uh, to his safe return. Yes, our thoughts are with Private King and his family during this difficult time. Now, Barrett, you were stationed at the demilitarized zone in South Korea. What was that like? Yeah, it was my first job in the Army, and I was an air assault uh, rifle um, platoon leader and for 23 uh, I was a 23 years old when, when I had that job. Uh, one of the, the most awesome experiences that I had, um, I had uh, 36 men under my command, and um, you know we were uh, you know stationed at the militarized zone about 12 miles away in Camp Casey, uh, South Korea, and um, this is when I was in 1st Battalion, 503rd Infantry Regiment, Air Assault. And uh, I tell you what, we were on the DMZ. We had, uh, were doing an exercise called Rock Frost uh, up at the DMZ. And um, one of the first things that we were doing was holding a, a squad exercise that the um, uh, battalion command sergeant major put on to win the uh, battalion command sergeant major's award. And so every squad in the battalion uh, was given a map and had a, a list of instructions, and it was a, a squad-led uh, activity. I decided to go ahead and attach myself to one of the squads just to kind of as an observer status uh, to, just to watch. I wasn't allowed to help, and uh, I tell you what, um, I, I did make a mistake by not having a map with me. And, uh, you know, when you go to the demilitarized zone, um, a- as you're moving around, prior to, to leaving, all officers are required to go into this room and uh, be searched and have maps and paper and pencils and pens taken from you. And there's two U.S. guards. Uh, and they unlock a door, and you, you go into a room that's all by yourself, and it has a single easel um, with a poncho liner uh, covering the easel. 
And so you go underneath the poncho liner so that only you're visibly looking at, at uh, what the document is. And it's a very large poster, uh, like I said, on a butcher block size paper of, of an easel. And it has all of the minefields all throughout the DMZ, on the, on clearly on the, um, the southern side, um, because we don't know where the, all the mines are on the northern side. But it had by year what type and um, uh, where each location was for every single minefield on the DMZ. And it is the most heavily mined border in the world, uh, most heavily mined location in the world. And so what you had to do was, was memorize your route, uh, not be able to take any notes, uh, memorize your route, and um, be prepared to, to walk along the DMZ uh, just knowing where the minefields were. Um, and so when I handed over my map, I, as a young lieutenant, I forgot to, uh, to get it back um, so that I could uh, do the, um, the exercise with my squad. And I tell you what, the old adage that you can't spell lost without an LT, uh, you know, never, never rang truer. Um, and so during the infantry officer basic course, we were always, always uh, taught to know where we were at all times. And we had our maps with us. Uh, but I'd, I'd never had a map. Uh, of mine confiscated before. Um, and so uh, it kind of uh, slipped my mind as I was trying to remember where all of those mines were, uh, both anti-tank and anti-personnel, uh, all those minefields at the DMZ. So we were maneuvering around the DMZ during the squad competition and it had gotten to nighttime and uh, the temperatures had gotten to negative 40. And I don't know if you understand negative 40 or if a lot of people out there understand negative 40 negative 40 is cold absolutely cold um at this point in time it was only the second time in recorded history that the han river had frozen over and the first time was during the korean war when the north koreans were able to roll their tanks directly across the river without having to use bridges um so it was really cold and uh as i said okay hey look give me the map and try to figure out where we were um uh, I saw a, uh, a compound off in the distance, and uh, so I took myself in the, in the squad with me, and uh, we, we came up to a guard shack, and two uh, soldiers uh, came out. It, they were not American. They were obviously South Korean soldiers. They came out, and uh, they, they yelled something at me, and, you know, I'll be honest, I, I really I don't speak Hangul, and so uh, I kept going, and I kept saying, look, we just want to use the telephone. And uh, I got closer and closer, and they yelled something again, which I, I couldn't understand. And um, so I, I got closer and said, look, we just really just want to use the telephone. We're lost. And uh, I took another step, and they both kneeled and chambered around from their, um, their rifles. And that I did understand. And so uh, I had a uh, Korean augmentee to the United States Army, a Katusa, uh, that was embedded into my squad. Uh, my platoon had two of them. It's a it's a vestige from the Korean War when the United States personnel were really being depleted out of platoons and companies. And so uh, the South Korean Army uh, augmented U.S. forces by providing these katusas. Again, Korean augmentee to the United States Army. And uh, Sergeant Ko came up and said, "Sir, uh, they're saying if you take another step, they're going to shoot you." And I said, well, Sergeant Ko, why didn't you tell me that before? And, and he said, I, I thought you spoke Hangul. And I was like, I don't. I don't speak Hangul. So please ask them if we can use their phone. And the short answer was, 
No. So that's how tight uh, it is at, at the demilitarized zone. They do not mess around. Um, it is an active war. It's uh, currently only sitting at an armistice. It's, it's, we do not have peace. Uh, there's not been a peace treaty. It's currently a pause in the fighting since the 50s. And um, they definitely, both sides, treat it, treat it as such. And I tell you what, it's very interesting at the DMZ, um, they have the South, the, sorry, the North Koreans have loudspeakers that um, are are broadcasting 24 hours a day, and it's full of full of propaganda. You'll hear a, a feminine voice in very good English say, "You know, come to the land of milk and honey. Uh, you know, come north, and you'll be treated uh, like kings. You know, please, please come to to North Korea." And, you know, they do have, North Koreans have spies in, uh, in South Korea, and they will do a lot of dumpster diving um, uh, through trash. Uh, in, in some instances, they'd get hired uh, unwilling or unknowingly by uh, military, U.S. military forces. And so if you find people going through trash, w- what they're looking for is, is personally identifiable information. And um, so, you know, they're looking for names and units and social security numbers. So, yeah, you'll be lying in your sleeping bag on the DMZ, and over the loudspeaker you'll hear, Private Smith, comma, John, social security number 1234567. Your mother misses you. Go home. And you're like, that is absolutely crazy um, that they're reading off these names and serial numbers, and and uh, it's it's definitely the surreal experience. So... The border is no joke. Um, like I said, I hope uh, Private King is uh, is uh, well and being treated well. Um, we want to get him back home because we, we hate having U.S. service members um, under uh, uh, control of foreign uh, militaries. But I tell you what, um, you know, it, it's just absolutely amazing. Well, Barrett, it sounds like you had quite the experience on the DMZ. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. But uh, I tell you what, so that wraps up our second segment of this podcast. Please stick around for the third segment after these messages. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, we would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in. Um, over the loudspeaker, the Marine Corps detachment will declare, uh, you know, a, a classification dis- destruction uh, protocol, and uh, alarm will sound, and they'll say go. Hi, welcome back to our third segment to episode one of Azimuth Podcast. I'm Barrett, and alongside me is my amazing wife, Kimberly. In this segment, we're going to talk about the legal issues facing former President Trump concerning the potential mishandling of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. In August of 2022, FBI agents secured hundreds of classified documents that contained some extremely sensitive information. And last week, a court date was set by District Judge Aline Cannon for a May 20, 2024 trial date. I tell you what, that's smack dab in the middle of the Republican primary season, with a two-month-long trial crashing straight into the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee, mid-July 2024. Will this affect Trump in the primary in a positive or negative way? Well, we don't know. 
However, while all this has been in the news, I haven't really seen a good explanation of what a security clearance is, what what levels of security there are on documents, how to get one, and, and even how damaging to the United States the release of sensitive information causes. Uh, both of us have held a high-level U.S. security clearance during our time in service, and we felt it was essential to shed some light on the intricacies of these, these clearances. Thanks, Barrett. Security clearances are a cornerstone of national security. They're the mechanism that allows trusted individuals access to classified information or restricted areas after an intensive background check. They are a way to protect our nation's most sensitive information. Yeah, exactly. But what many might know is that there are different levels uh, and several levels of security clearances. Uh, We start with confidential, move on to secret, and then top secret. And there's even another level above that called sensitive compartmented information, or SCI. Now, for five years, I held a top secret SCI clearance, and you held a top secret clearance. That's right. And each level has a different potential damage factor if the information were improperly disclosed. Confidential might cause damage, But if you look at top secret or SCI information, if disclosed, it could cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. These are not just labels. They matter significantly. And while we're talking about national security, let's look beyond our borders for a moment. The Five Eyes is an intelligent alliance uh, between the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And these countries share sensitive intelligence with each other on a level of trust and collaboration only possible with the stringent security clearances. So you you could see a document that's labeled secret uh, five eyes or top secret five eyes. That means that document could be shared with any of those five countries. Exactly. Now, it is important to note that obtaining these clearances is not a walk in the park. For a confidential clearance, the process can take anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. For a secret clearance, the duration can extend up to a year while a top-secret clearance can take up to a year and a half. Now, you may be wondering, how does one get a security clearance? Uh, The process uh, involves an extensive background check after filling out a government form called an SF-86. The background check will include a check into your financial history, connections to foreign nationals, criminal records, and federal investigators talking to your friends and family while combing through your social media accounts. The higher the clearance, the deeper the dive, which also costs the government more money. A secret level investigation can cost about $75,000, with a top secret check costing 100000 and SCI investigations costing around 150000 With our national security at stake, there are many things that could potentially disqualify an applicant, such as having high levels of debt, which could make you susceptible to foreign influence. Give me this document, and I'll give you the money to pay off your credit card. Another potential disqualifier for the highest level clearances could be an undisclosed adultery or being a gay individual that hasn't come out of the closet yet. And to be clear, being gay is not a disqualifier. It only becomes a problem if it's a secret. Both of these situations could be used against you if a foreign intelligence agency threatened to out you if you don't comply with their demands for information. And that's not all. Having a clearance does not automatically give you access to all of the information at that level. You must also have a need to know that information. For instance, a military officer working in logistics will not necessarily have access to intelligence information, even if both are classified at the same level. An example of this is the pending case against Air National Guardsman 
Jack Texiera, who had a top-secret security clearance and allegedly leaked classified information on a private Discord site. He had the clearance so he could work on the classified IT servers, but misused his clearance to access documents he did not need to know. Yeah, now let's debunk a common myth. Not all high-ranking officials automatically receive high-level clearances. Take a senator, for instance. They're not granted access to all the country's classified information simply because of their position. They need to undergo the same vetting process as the rest of us. However, there is one notable exception to this rule. The President of the United States will be given access to any government or military information they request, even if they wouldn't normally qualify for a security clearance. It's one of the unique aspects of the role. Even if that individual has a felony on their record or has mishandled classified information in the past, and while we're on the topic of access and restrictions, let's talk about no form. It stands for no foreign nationals. It means that the information cannot be shared with any foreign nationals, even our closest allies. This often applies to some of the most sensitive information we have. All these procedures and, and precautions are in place for a reason. As classified information gets leaked or falls into the wrong hands, it can have dire consequences. It could jeopardize military operations, expose intelligence sources and methods, and harm our relations with other nations. Absolutely, Barrett. This is why the concept of need-to-know and restrictions like no foreign are so important. They add another layer of protection to prevent unauthorized disclosure. I mean, security clearances are all about trust and protection. Uh, and they ensure that the sensitive information is only accessible to those who need it, and you can be trusted with it and know how to handle it. So when you hear about security clearances in the news, remember, it's not just about background checks and clearances. It is a complex system of trust, verification, responsibility, and crucial safeguards working together to protect our nation's secrets. So when I was commissioned as a second lieutenant uh, in the Army, I held a secret level clearance up until I transitioned um, to being a, from an infantry officer to being a foreign area officer. Um, and the new position required a top secret SCI level clearance, um, which was pretty intense. Um, I, I informed my friends and family that investigation was coming, and, and even so, when the federal investigators came uh, to their business offices to ask questions, it caused uh, quite a commotion with their co-workers uh, trying to find out what was going on. I'm sure it was the, quite the talk of the week um, at, the, at the water cooler. Yes, when I got mine, I sent little texts saying, hey, I'm getting this job. People might be asking you about me. Uh, you know, they're from the government. It's no time to, to joke about things we did in college or anything like that. Uh, just be honest. Yes, I did work here. Yes, I did live here with you for this, these amount of years. Uh, and they were still surprised. Like, they were asking me this and this. And I saw this, you know, black car driving down the driveway. And they spent two hours here. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it, was, it was quite interesting uh having people from a small town with zero experience with the federal government. Uh, and and you and I, stories. we both moved around a lot. I moved around a lot in, in college and definitely moved around um, before I met you uh, in the Army. Um, and I know you, you lived a lot of places as well. Was there anything that uh, was key to keeping your address list? Uh, I think it helped both of us out. Amazon is not only your best friend for Christmas shopping, it is also your best friend 
and reminding where all you've lived because you just check your little mailbox under your account and you're like, oh my goodness, I can choose all these different addresses to ship my box to. Oh yeah, these are places I've lived. and Or you could check your order history. So that helped a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was just in, in crazy because um, I even had all the addresses when I was deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. All of the uh, APOAE and um, uh, APOAP addresses um, uh, and all the different forward operating bases that I was in, it was easy peasy getting all those uh, addresses down. Um, so that, that was absolutely amazing. But uh, speaking on the security um, in, uh, in, in you know, the embassy that, it was, that we were in, in in Morocco concerning classified documents, um, if you recall, I had the uh, to enter the Office of Security Cooperation's classified information, the safe was in my office. Um, and you remember all the security doors that I had to mm-hmm. go through just to get to my desk. Uh, it, was, it was silly. Uh, and it was literally something like the intro to the 1960s show, Get Smart, uh, with having to go through all of the doors just to get to uh, the, the top secret safe um, that, was, that was co-located in my office. Um, now, my, my office, the little, or I like to call it the little teeny closet that I was in under the stairs, um, had the only classified uh, safe that was uh, in the entire um, Department of Defense side of the embassy. And um, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of departments in the embassy. There's uh, the FBI, uh, and they're usually the legal attaches. There's Department of Transportation. There's the uh, Department of Agriculture. There's even the CIA with the um, station chief and things like that. And, and they have their, all their own safes. But, um, but the DOD's safe, uh, Department of Defense's safe, was in my little closet under the stairs. Um, and it was a, uh, a significant event in order to get in there. But I tell you what, I had gotten back from traveling uh, from my base of operations in the embassy in Rabat, Morocco, uh, coming from a, another country. And uh, I came in over the weekend, and I saw that there was a pink security violation from the Marine Embassy guards um, on my desk. And it said, you left classified material out, and uh, you're in big trouble. So I went down to the Marine Guard desk, and uh, I said, hey, you know, th- this is me. Um, you know, can, can you tell me more about this classified information that was left out on my desk. And they said, well, sir, it's in this sealed uh, security envelope. And I said, well, can I, can I see it? And uh, he said, no, sir, you, you can't see it. We have to wait until the uh, Marine Chief Guard uh, comes in uh, on Monday. And uh, so I, I you know, was absolutely just beside myself because I'm so careful uh, about uh, classified material. And uh, so I told my boss, who was Lieutenant Colonel, he was the, the chief of the Office of Security Cooperation. And, um, you know, he was Barrett, you know, I can't believe you left something out. And uh, I was like, you know, I just don't understand how this happened. I've been gone uh, for the last week, and I haven't even been in, in my office. And so anyway, once Monday came around and we looked at the, um, the document, it was a Navy document. Uh, and I was like, look, I don't have anything to do with the... The, the Navy side, I'm in the Army, and uh, the, the, the Naval Programs Officer owned up to it and said, you know, uh, this is actually my fault. Um, I, you know, went into the classified safe area and pulled this document out, and I was um, unfortunately lazy and, and didn't get this document back in. And uh, so the fact that it was a Navy document and, and had nothing to do with, with my job in the embassy and the fact that I'd been gone for the past week and wasn't there to access the safe, 
um, the security violation was was ripped up. And and the significance of that is is when you do a uh, reinspection of your uh, security clearance, there's a section on the SF-86 is have you ever been written up for a security violation? Yes, no. And um, you know, so I could I could just see my reinvestigation being damaged um, due to the fact that um, that I, that I had that security violation. But luckily, the uh, security violation was ripped up, and um, and unfortunately, the Navy programs officer did receive the the security mm-hmm. violation, um, which you know, very honorable that he owned up to it. Um, but it did save me. Do you think politicians understand the importance if they don't have to go through the biannual cha- training? I tell you what, Kimberly, um, you know, I don't think they have an appreciation for it because um, especially, you know, when when you look at all of the documents that the president and vice president um, or President Biden, when he was vice president and and former President Trump have, um, I I don't know if they have the full appreciation uh, for that because they, they didn't have to you know, attend all of the online death by PowerPoint uh, classes in order to uh, continue to have access to, to security, um, uh, security access to computers and saves and, and access codes and things like that. I mean, it is really enough to make your eyes bleed through the death by PowerPoint. Now, let me say it, it is very important. It truly is important to go through the training. Um, but, you know, after a while doing it, twice and or four times a year for 10 years straight, um, you kind of, you're, you're ready to, to program the, the training yourself um, <laughs> and in uh, that. But I tell you what, you know, here's how seriously the embassy took the security of, of, of the documents. So uh, in the embassy, uh, as I alluded to before, it's guarded by a Marine Corps uh, detachment and um, uh, approximately, you know, seven to 10 Marines um, the uh, all, all of the the normal guards are are all single. Uh, they can't be married. The um, the detachment commander um, can be married. So um, usually it's it's somebody that has done an embassy duty before and so has has experience after they've come back, uh, gone back to the fleet and then and then come back to the embassy. And uh, so, but it's the Marine Corps detachment's job to uh, to protect uh, all of the the people, the facilities, and the documents inside the embassy. And so twice a year, we would have what was called a shred drill. Now, uh, every department that I listed before, all the alphabet agencies and their classified material, um, you know, all have shredders. And we're not talking about the shredders that you see in the movie Argo um, or Lord of War, where you, you put it in and, and, it, and it takes the piece of paper and, and puts it into maybe 30 teeny little strips. Uh, these are cross-cutting shredders that really turn the document into a fine powder. Um, and then it goes into a burn bag, and then that fine powder is, is, is burned. And so uh, we're able to dispose of uh, classified information you know, to the very minute level. Uh, effectively, it turns into just a bunch of atoms. So, um, but, but the Marine Guard does a, a shred drill uh, twice a year. And so as you're just normally going through the year, you uh, accumulate one foot, one foot of uh, discarded paper documents. Uh, so obviously it's not, it's not classified information, just unclassified information. But if you're printing out a, a Word document and instead of recycling, it, it goes into the, um, the shred, uh, shred test box. And when you accumulate one foot, um, you just kind of leave it alone and you, you measure it. You actually measure it to make sure it's one foot of documents. 
and um, over the loudspeaker, the Marine Corps detachment will declare, uh, you know, a, a classification dis- destruction uh, protocol, and uh, alarm will sound, and they'll say go. And so, what you do is you time yourself to shred that one foot of documents through the shredder. And uh, you have a little stopwatch, and and you're feeding the documents one right after another, um, and uh, and you're also, um, you know, again, it's two people helping you push push documents through the through the hole and, and and getting it timed. And so you time yourself on how long it takes you to shred one foot of material. And so um, once that's done, you take that time and you go and you measure with a with a measuring tape all of the classified materials that you have in your uh, area. Uh, so in this case, we only had the safe. Um, so uh, all the drawers of the safe, you take all the documents out, you, you measure them, and you calculate how long, uh, how many feet you have, and how long it took you to do one foot in order to get the total time that it would take your department to shred all of the documents. And so what would happen is you would, each department would turn that into the, the Marine detachment, and then that would give them the time that they knew that they needed to defend the embassy from any potential attackers. And so um, we practice this uh, twice a year. And, you know, it's the, it's the real deal. I mean, you're, 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 you know, setting yourself up for success just in case um, there's an incident uh, such as the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, Iran, um, being overrun and uh, the, uh, highlighted in the movie uh, Argo, but being overrun and, and having the ability not to, to shred the documents. The State Department um, and diplomatic security have learned a lot since then, obviously. And uh, so, yeah, so it's just, you know, an amazing opportunity to, to showcase and train, um, and, and it's muscle memory. So when you, you know how long it takes and you've got a dry erase board with that number, um, it's the real deal. Uh, so how do you think this will affect the trial? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, it is kind of uh, interesting to see um, you know, how, how much this is really going to affect the trial. I mean, as we, as we get in, we're in, you know, kind of the, the primary season, we haven't had any votes yet. So it's kind of the preliminary primary, right? And, um, we are seeing, uh, President Trump's poll numbers increase. And I, and I know that he is also, um, uh, fundraising off of the, um, uh, you know, the, the alleged uh, mishandling of the classified material. But I tell you what, um, when, you, when you listen to the former Attorney General uh, Barr's uh, statements of, of the more than 30 um, uh, indictments that, that he has um, or charges that he has, uh, you know, Barr said, you know, even, even if only half of them are accurate, um, then, you know, there's, there's probably a, a significant problem. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, as we, uh, you know, the trial is set uh, for May 2024. And again, that, that butts right up against um, the, uh, the Republican National Convention in, in um, Milwaukee. And so really, you know, it, it, uh, you know, most of the states will have already cast their primary ballots. So typically the, at the, the National Convention, whether it's the the RNC or the DNC, you're going to have uh, the candidate announced. And then once right. the candidate's announced, then you you go into um, the general election. Now, on the Republican side, there's still about five states that ha- would not have had their primary 
um, before the RNC convention. And so they, they have their primary afterwards, um, but they are kind of smaller states. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if, you know, a person has the lion's share of, um, of the, you know, the states during the primary, I don't know if, if the, the last five are going to be able to sway it. So they're probably going to have the announcement. So, um, you know, at at that point in time, what happens, uh, if Trump, uh, is found guilty? Um, you know, does, does President Biden, uh, pardon him? Uh, because again, uh, let's just say, let's walk the dog and say that, that former president Trump is found, uh, guilty as we, as we know, the president is the only, uh, person that automatically gets security clearance, even if they have a felony conviction or a misdemeanor conviction, or even, um, you know, a, um, mishandling of, of classified, uh, information. I mean, that could be an, an administrative, um, uh, hit put on him. Uh, so, you know, if he was having to fill out an SF-86, uh, you know, have you ever received a security violation, pink slip? Uh, <laughs> yes, no. Um, you know, in, in this instance, uh, President Trump would have received a pink slip, right? right. But we know that um, that an SF-86 is not filled out by the president, uh, just automatically is granted that clearance. And so, you know, it's, um, it's, it's up in the air. Well, what do you think? Uh, well, you know, court dates can get moved. And so what if it doesn't happen till August Very or true. September? Um, so I, I don't know. Um, people might still support him even in jail. Well, yeah. So, you know, President That's Trump's uh, team, they wanted to have the trial um, after the election. Uh, is what they wanted. And um, the federal prosecutors wanted it uh, before the primary season. Um, so they wanted it, they wanted it kind of now. And uh, so the judge split the difference. Um, okay. And that's, that's kind of how, how it got a May 2024. Um, and, you know, it, uh, it, it is an interesting scenario, because it's, it's something that has never happened uh, before in our country's history. Um, so this is, you know, beyond interesting. Um, it is it is interesting to note that um, a lot of the Republicans have not dogpiled on uh, President Trump for this. Uh, in fact, they've been very supportive, and mm-hmm. so um, you know it, it is kind of um, kind of interesting to see exactly how this is going to play out. Because again, we don't have a uh, a textbook or an outline for something mm-hmm. like this be- um, before. And uh, so it's definitely interesting to see. And, and it's clearly something that we're going to continue to be talking about as we move further um, through, um, you know, our, our podcast careers. But, I, I you know, it's, it's all up in the air. I mean, it, it's all up in the air. Well, this concludes our third and final segment of our first Azimuth podcast episode. We're so glad to have expanded the conversation to each and every single one of you, and we hope to build a relationship, learn, and grow together as we seek to ensure our country stays on the right path. We're planning on releasing full episodes on Mondays with the individual segments released throughout the week on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Take care. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our show with all the stories we share, we would love your support. And it's as easy as clicking that subscribe or follow button. This will ensure you never miss an episode and keeps us bringing you these important stories. Your support makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast family. Thanks, and keep tuning in.